Okay, I think we are now going live. Hello, Jim. Thank you for joining us for one of our In Conversation events. Good to see you. You too. Um, so, yes, you, well, you've been chosen for Keir Starmer's Shadow Cabinet. Uh, I mean, first of all, I'm just going to ask you, were you expecting that? And um, kind of, were you hoping to get transport? Is that an area that you're already interested in? Well, I, I think kind of expecting any job in politics means you're all doomed to failure. So uh, you kind of generally better to kind of do your best, work hard, show good work ethic and commitment, which is what I tried to do, you know, for nearly four years as the local government uh, shadow minister. You know, um, I've been kind of, probably I'm not somebody that you would see on TV all the time. Uh, I'm the kind of geeky person that kind of gets to the data, likes research, uh, likes exposing where the government have maybe got their eye off the ball. Um, and I kind of transfer that across to transport really. So when I was asked to come on the show cabinet, um, obviously there's a conversation about your interests and your background. And mm -hmm. if I'm honest, I was keen to move away from local government, uh, not because I don't love it, because I absolutely do. And I'm a huge cheerleader for councils and uh, the work that they do. Um, but I was a councillor for 13 years. Uh, I was the leader of the LJ uh, Labour Group. Mm -hmm. uh, when I came into Parliament, uh, Jeremy asked me to serve as a shadow minister on the team, and I've, I've loved every minute of it. Um, but I think in terms of your own personal development, actually you know, trying new things, looking at different areas uh, is important. And for me, transport is fundamental. So I was absolutely over the moon uh, to be invited. It's a dream job, to be honest. Do you think Keir was looking for someone who'd bring a very nerdy approach to transport? Um, I'm not sure if he was looking for it, but he certainly got it. <laughs> um, no, I mean, from, you know, from, from my point of view, the, the, the data is really important. Mm. Um, you know, what, whatever we do in terms of policy development, in terms of developing our plan for the future, it's got to be based on evidence to make sure that the money that we're investing on the public's behalf is being spent in the right places and will have the impact that we want. Uh, we also need, by the way, to expose the government. And the best way to do that is by using data to expose, you know, just how many bus routes have been cut would be a good example, or how much money the private sector are top slicing off our rail industry at a time when many of the trains don't turn up on time. You know, all, all those issues are really important for making the case for change. Uh, and so I'll do that. But of course, you know, I, I do understand the need for a political discussion and to articulate uh, our political position as well. I just believe it should come from an informed uh, perspective. And I would say that's you know, kind of mirrors Keir style, really. You know, he is a yeah. person that has real attention to detail. You know, we can't counter him to Boris Johnson, uh, who has no work ethic at all, who's a part-time prime minister, who barely turns up, who doesn't understand there's a crisis until weeks afterwards. Uh, and you've got Keir, who I think is really in tune with where the public are, uh, but more than just kind of articulating people's concerns, he's really in on the detail of it. And I think Boris stumbles because of it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a big focus of drawing on basically Keir's main quality, which is attention to detail and, and being professional and credible and, and all those sort of things. Definitely his shadow cabinet kind of reflects that, those picks that he made. You were also chosen to sit on the NEC, the ruling body, as a front bench rep. I was wondering what you thought of that, because when I spoke to Jonathan Reynolds for one of these uh, In Conversation events about that, he basically said, compared to when he was sitting on the NEC as a youth rep many years ago, he thought the conduct had actually gotten worse and the, the, we, the meetings were a bit worse. How have you found it? I mean, so far, it's mostly been over Zoom, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly kind of reflective, really. So I serve on the Labour Party NEC, uh, but I also serve on the Cooperative Party NEC. Obviously, Labour and Cooperative, uh, that kind of sister relationship is really important to me. Uh, and they are very different in style, uh, in, in character, uh, in culture, I suppose. 
Uh, I think what I would say is that I, I honestly think that the vast majority of people are around that table or that Zoom call for the right reasons. You know, they come into politics because they care passionately about their community. Uh, they want to see their vision of, you know, a better world um, seen through. Uh, and the way to achieve that is by being in government, being in power and achieving that. And the route for us, because, you know, uh, we're of the left of politics, is through the Labour Party. It's got a huge potential to be a force for good. But clearly, we're all politicians. We all have an opinion. And quite often, our opinions are very strong. And at times, that can lead uh, to, you know, to kind of contentious issues uh, being debated where people maybe take different views. But I'm fairly reflective, really. I tend to want to see the good in people. Uh, and even when I disagree with some uh, people on the NEC over an issue, uh, I generally, you know, have faith that they're raising it for the right reasons. I was wondering about your your obviously very strong link with the co-op party. Is there anything, do you think that will shape how you approach the brief, the shadow cabinet brief that you have and, and your NEC role as well? Well, I mean, it, it, it's throughout all my view on politics, to be honest. Yeah. So, you know, I strongly believe in the power of community, the power that as individuals, we have huge potential. But when we come together as a collective and we bring that together and we share the benefits out together, that that potential is even wider and more sustained. And I think, you know, if cooperatives were uh, kind of relevant in, you know, days gone by, uh, if I think about my own town uh, and where I live in Oldham, you know, that cooperative was established because people were so fed up of being sold rotten overpriced meat that they decided to set up their own shop and the shop then becomes uh, a farm and the farm becomes a laundry and the, then it becomes uh, you, you know so significant in the community it does far more it reinvests uh, that kind of collective profit yeah. back into the community and I think you know if we look at the way uh, the country has been run the way the economy has been hollowed out the way that actually short-term uh, shareholder interest obviously you know, too often trumps our collective interest. I think now with COVID, uh, you know, the view will be taken about those that have done the right thing uh, in the national interest, in the workers' interest, and companies, frankly, who have been selfish uh, and have used COVID as a cover for doing things that they would want to do uh, in other times as well. And so uh, I would hope that our cooperative economy will be a kind of significant part of Labour's manifesto, but it'll mm -hmm. certainly inform all of my politics. So let's talk about the specifics of some transport policy areas. I was going to first, I'm going to turn to uh, aviation because that's the big one in the news at the moment. Every time I do a paper review, it's the Tory press usually supportive of the government being very angry about things like airport testing, uh, about the kind of last minute quarantine rule changes. I mean, to a certain extent, the quarantine rules around in international travel are going to change unexpectedly, right? At short and at short notice. That's just kind of the situation that we're in. What would what is Labour saying that it would do differently in terms of those announcements at the moment? Well, I mean, to be fair, what we're saying today is what the government was saying uh, many months ago, which is that you have to have basic minimum standards to keep the country safe. Uh, and so, agreeing what those uh, standards are, being transparent uh, about what those standards are, is important. But also showing international leadership. I mean, if we think about when uh, the 14-day quarantine was introduced uh, in June, we were one of only a handful of countries in the world that at that point hadn't had either partial or full restrictions on incoming passengers in place, by which time over 20 million people had come into the country. You know, so we were late uh, in having any restrictions. And when the restrictions came, they were the bluntest possible tool, which is you don't test, uh, you don't track. What you do is to force everybody to isolate 
for 14 days. Hugely yeah. damaging for tourism, hugely damaging for our aviation industry, uh, and actually not an intelligent way to approach how to govern. Because to govern well, you've got to have the public confidence and have a clear plan that people can get behind. And I think most people were really angry uh, at that uh, intervention. Then we were promised that we'd have air corridors. Now, the idea of an air corridor is that there is a bilateral agreement in place uh, with another country where you would have basic standards that are common, but also where you would support each other to reduce the risk. And actually, that's one area where we've seen no progress at all. So when we talk about kind of our, our most recent intervention, so why do we need to have a testing regime that is solely UK focused? Uh, and at the moment, we're saying we'll test on arrival and then in five days time, uh, have another test which is similar to the, to the model in Iceland. Mm. Well, actually, that's because there isn't an international agreement on uh, countries providing mutual test support. You know, so for instance, having a test four days before departure uh, means that then the test on arrival uh, is far more robust, and then five days after that, even more robust. And, and what the government says is, well, there's no point in doing that because if you do a test on arrival, you're only going to capture 70% of positivity. But then when you look at the national uh, testing regime, uh, and the number of tests that are carried out versus positivity rates, well, that's less than 2%. So if the national test is, is capturing 2% and an airport arrivals test would capture 7%, Instinct says that's probably not a, an unreasonable test to carry out. The truth is they haven't invested in capacitor. And so if we were to uh, you know, increase confidence, have more people traveling and have that volume uh, of consumer business travel, then we would need the testing capacity then to support it. And I would say the government are really fearful about the lack of, you know, the lack of investment they've made and what it means for schools returning, uh, what it means for universities returning, uh, and then the impact that might have on the existing capacity uh, that's in place. But you would do that, you know, there's no reason why the government couldn't have negotiated, say, with Spain, where, you know, uh, British tourism is so important to, to, the, to the Spanish. Uh, well, actually, can they help us by testing before departure a number of days before? That would help then a UK-based system and vice versa, and, and we would do it in return. That hasn't been done, and it just shows a complete lack of leadership, to be honest. Why? I mean, so as I was saying, like the Daily Mail, for instance, Daily Telegraph, they they've been having these campaigns about airport testing and how like Heathrow has actually set up a facility, but there's not the testing there in place in order to use it properly. Why do you think the government, despite all of this pressure, hasn't actually sorted this out yet? What is the reason for that? Let's, I mean, let's be honest, Boris Johnson himself has articulated very clearly what the government's strategy is. You know, when he talks about whack-a-mole, he really means it. You wait for the mole to pop up and you whack it. And quite often, by the way, you miss it. <laughs> it goes down before you've had time to, to, to land the hammer. That's exactly the way that they've approached uh, COVID right from the start. Just yeah. think about how long we took to get into lockdown originally. You know, had we have gone into lockdown earlier, we would have stopped that widespread community transmission uh, that meant that we were in lockdown for a prolonged period you know, risking jobs, risking the impact on the economy uh, and the like. But because we were late, we didn't have the luxury of reducing the period overall of lockdown. Just look at how late they were on ventilators. You know, we talk about how, you know, we really kind of rallied to get the nightingales up. But the ventilator contracts were absolutely woeful. It was effectively a call out to the private sector to do your best, uh, but actually very late in coming. Same with care homes uh, and care home deaths. You know, on every uh, pandemic, uh, on every virus, uh, that spreads uh, across the community. It's always known that care homes are a vulnerable setting because of the age profile of people uh, who live there, but also the coming and going of staff uh, from the wider community into that location. How long did it take to even get basic PPE? 
how long did it take to get those staff tested? Uh, and we're seeing the same, by the way, uh, with aviation. So we know that aviation is heavily seasonal. You know, that, that summer period is really important for uh, the travel industry and aviation. And that's where they make their profit for the rest of the year. So if you don't have that summer season, uh, then actually you're really going to struggle uh, to be able to kind of get the money in to provide uh, the support through winter in, into the new year. The government knew that, but when they were asked to provide a sector deal, you know, a financial package that would support that industry and what could be a prolonged recovery, they said, well, we don't need to do that. We have the furlough scheme, uh, we have the sea bill scheme, uh, and by the way, we also have the distressed airline scheme, if that doesn't work, although the cloud of secrecy and the rest of it. But when you say, well, hang on, we're giving a lot of money to private business, what's the deal here? So what we're doing for workers' rights, I mean, the behaviour of British Airways uh, and EasyJet, where they're using this as an opportunity to change workers' terms and conditions, could have been dealt with by the government saying, you're not going to get a penny of taxpayers' money if you don't look after the welfare of your staff. What we're doing to make sure that the money that we're giving across isn't sitting on the balance sheet of a PLC instead of getting out through the wider supply chain. Mm -hmm. So what about the small and medium businesses in our regions who are contracted to airlines who maybe aren't being paid? What are we doing to make sure that for people who haven't got their tax affairs in the UK, well, if you benefited from the safety net, then it's time you paid your tax in the UK and paid into the safety net that you've taken advantage of. Uh, and the same uh, around climate change and making sure that we don't lose the momentum uh, to have cleaner aviation going forward. You know, this cannot be an excuse to have a race to the bottom uh, on that fight, uh, you know, to respond to the climate emergency. And then ticket refunds. You know, we can't be giving out money uh, to airline operators who then don't pass that on through, you know, legitimate consumer uh, refunds. So there's a range of issues uh, there. And then finally, frankly, it takes some nerve to pay your shareholders 170 million pound dividends when the pandemic was at its peak and then go cap in hand to the government and say you need financial support. But where were those conditions from our government? And now we're faced with the, the furlough scheme ending in October. That will be a disaster for many parts of our economy that have struggled uh, to rebuild uh, from the COVID effect. And that's before we get into anything like what could be the second spike uh, of the virus and what that might mean for another lockdown. Mm. You know, they, they, these are hugely concerning times. And, you know, I, I say this, you know, the, the Labour Party is a party of working people. You know, it's for us to give working people a voice when the government are neglecting them and letting them down. And we tried to do that on aviation. We tried to do it across all transport, whether, by the way, it's talking about, you know, the protection of bus drivers. And if you look at the ONS data, again, the kind of data geek and whatever, uh, you know, it's transport workers. Uh, who are some of the most vulnerable in terms of COVID deaths. Why? Because they haven't got the protection and they come into contact uh, with members of the public uh, through the course of their work. Government could have done far more early on to give them the support when the data was clearly pointing to the vulnerabilities of those jobs. So during COVID, and that obviously, you know, the effect of that is particularly hitting the aviation sector hard, as you were saying, so Unite, the TUC and some of the other unions, they've put together this package of measures that they're calling for. So they're saying extension of furlough, uh, suspension of air passenger duty, um, public service obligation routes, business rate relief for airports, um, all, all this whole package. Does the Labour Party back the call for all of those measures? Yeah, so we've been very clear that the furlough scheme needs to be extended. Uh, we backed calls from the trade unions to see that extended till March. Uh, the reason for that is, of course, we need to get back into the new year to allow the kind of uh, building up back to the summer season. 
uh, we cannot allow you know tens of thousands of people to be made redundant. But I, I would I'll probably go further a bit, uh, which is to say that we should be far more flexible. So the furlough scheme being extended is one thing, but also allowing far more flexibility within the furlough scheme. You know, for instance, to allow uh, staff to be rotated but still be able to claim furlough money for the time that they're not on the work. Uh, place, you know, uh, two weeks on, two weeks off type rotors, but being able to claim furlough for the two weeks that the member of staff is off. Uh, it's good for mental health of staff, being in the workplace, being around colleagues, uh, having that social interaction. It's good for maintaining skills, uh, so that you're always uh, keeping those skills uh, refreshed. Uh, and actually, it's good for government overall, because, you know, people in work paying taxes is far better than paying for people not to be in work, claiming unemployment benefit. Uh, and so we'd be calling for that uh, as well. But also, I think, you know, a bit more flexibility. If you look at... Uh, British Airways and their call for government support, which by the way, we do support. We just believe that there should be conditions around it uh, and that British Airways should treat its staff with more respect. But overall, we want that business to succeed because it's critical for those jobs and for our economy. The Spanish government give a five-year repayment period uh, of a government loan. So it recognizes that actually the recovery will be prolonged and it will take time to get back to a position of health. In the UK, the government require repayment within 12 months or 24 months by negotiation. And if you can't demonstrate that your balance sheet will be healthy and be able to service that loan by then, then quite often you're denied uh, that financial support. Well, why? If you're going to be healthy in three years' time, then that's better for the economy, it's better for jobs, the government's going to get the money back anyway, uh, and far better that we take that medium-term view of those uh, industries. And, you know, for aviation, you know, just look at uh, many other parts of, uh, you know, the supply chain. You know, in manufacturing, in engineering, uh, in those kind of ancillary support uh, jobs that support uh, uh, airports, you know, the food caterers, uh, the security staff. Um, and, you know, as much as we kind of recognise that passenger journeys have gone down, let's not forget how important aviation is uh, to our import and export market. Um, you know, we rely particularly with aviation on the bellies of the aircraft holding a lot of the goods that we import and export. And they're generally going to be the high value uh, imports, exports or tech uh, pharmaceuticals uh, in particular. I mean, obviously the aviation stuff is quite controversial with some Labour activists, isn't it? Because there are groups like Labour for a Green New Deal who are really pushing for a people's bailout, they call it. And they've been critical of some of Labour's and your comments on aviation. And they're kind of saying, well, if it isn't now the time to transition away from those kind of industries and specifically aviation and towards greener industries, then when is the time? And they're kind of saying, isn't this the perfect opportunity right now to say, well, it's dangerous, it's quite unappealing at the moment, let's say now that transition is needed and don't actually help them to, to you know, keep functioning the way that they are in five years time, for instance, but actually transition those workers into industries that will be better for the planet. What do you think? Well, I mean, I mean first of all, I absolutely understand the, that there is a tension you know, that the climate emergency uh, is, is not um, something that you can put on the back burner in a sense. It's got to be dealt with, with the, uh, the urgency that it requires. Um, and so I absolutely understand that. My point, though, that I would make, and I say this with absolute respect, uh, is that the Labour Party is a party of working people. And if we are not the voice when people are being faced with redundancy, then quite frankly, um, we don't deserve the support of working people. So we have to stand shoulder to shoulder with the workers who are facing redundancy because of the mishandling of the crisis by this government. Uh, and I say that for the workers, but I also say it by the way, for how we transition uh, to a green economy. Uh, and my view is that the best way to do that is from a position of strength. 
So an aviation sector that is sustainable, but also where we uh, allow it to be financially sustainable in the medium and long term. I mean, it doesn't help uh, the environment to have uh, you know, contracts cancelled for the production of new aircraft that are greener aircraft. You know, but if you have a weak aviation sector, that almost certainly happens because the orders get withheld uh, and that support, uh, of course, goes. But also, what is the alternative today? If Labour was in power, what would we do? We would use this as an opportunity to restructure the economy. It won't go back to the way it was. But there's a real danger with the way that we're heading that it will be a Tory restructure of the economy. So it won't be the investment in green jobs. It won't be the retrofitting of homes uh, and the job opportunities and the climate opportunities uh, that that brings. It won't be about technology, research and development, uh, engineering and manufacturing capability to reinforce those kind of skilled manufacturing jobs that in many towns like mine, by the way, are something of the past and maybe not the future. These are really critical for giving working class people uh, a sense of pride and purpose. And the climate change uh, emergency gives us the opportunity but we're not in government and the Tories have no interest at all in using this as an opportunity to restructure the economy uh, and build a green economy. And so, you know, I would love the world uh, to be as we imagine it to be and how we want it to be. But frankly, for the workers that we represent, we've got to deal with the world as it is today. Uh, and it's really important that we defend uh, their jobs. Do you think, I mean, when you're going on, you're planning a holiday, do you feel if you, if you, like plan to take plane for your holiday. Do you feel a bit bad about that? I always feel a bit, little bit guilty. Do you think we should? Do you, do you think we should be flying less, or do you think we need to support that sector? Well, another opportunity that we uh, I think have skipped over, and definitely the government have, is to understand actually that just how our supply chain works. So part of the reason why we have lost many decent jobs in the communities, uh, some of which, by the way. Uh, are not convinced that Labour has the answer today. You know, those red wall seats where the industries have been completely hollowed out. The, you know, the government talked about levelling up, but we know that's nonsense and they have no interest in doing anything other than a soundbite. But there is a question for us about, if you follow through the supply chain, what are our foundation industries that we need, that we need to invest in? So steel manufacturing uh, would be one example, but there are many others, research and development and the rest of it, advanced manufacturing, where actually we import far too much. Uh, and actually the environmental cost of the import uh, regime we've got is significant. Well, that provides two opportunities. One, uh, you know, to repatriate those jobs back to the UK to provide decent jobs for the future, but it also then reduces on, you know, the environmental impact uh, of importing those goods uh, currently provides. That, that, that's just one example of where the government could do uh, far more just on that one issue. On, um, let's move on to rail. I don't feel bad, by the way. I don't feel, I think there is something, by the way, about, uh, <laughs> we, we, you know, if you work hard, uh, having quality of life and spending time with your family and enjoying moments is why we're humans, right? We're not just work machines. You know, we thrive off those interactions. And some of our fondest memories are when we have that family time and, you know, time with friends uh, outside of the normal routine. And holiday is a really important part of that. But I can say, you know, I don't think we should be uh, punishing people for having that one holiday a year that they've saved up to. Yeah. Uh, when actually, you know, the environmental impact of that in context of the wider kind of economic, uh, uh, sorry, environmental harm that many of our day-to-day -day actions uh, cost uh, is actually more significant and where we should be uh, investing time. So I don't go away often. It's actually been quite a long time since we've been away. Uh, but I have booked a flight to go uh, to Berlin in December for four days with the family. Uh, and hope, you know, fingers crossed, if we don't see a second spike, if the quarantine isn't chaotic, yeah. uh, then, then I'll be going there and enjoying it. But 
I'll also make sure that in my day-to-day responsibilities, I do as much as I can to reduce my own impact on the environment. Is that over Christmas that you're spending it in Germany? That's nice. Not over Christmas or just before Christmas. We'll hopefully get back there before Christmas. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm quite sure though, I mean, it is uh, sods a lot that by the time we get there, we're probably in a second spike and Grant Chats will introduce a 14 day quarantine on return, which means it might not be possible. (laughs) It might be more the Manchester Christmas market, I think. Yeah. So rail is another big one for for Labour members. We love talking about railways. And I mean, during the pandemic, the Tory government uh, has basically gone some way towards nationalising the railways because they bailed out the franchises and they've they've guaranteed those financial risks of the train operating companies. What did you think of that development? Were you kind of celebrating that, the fact that we kind of moved towards nationalising the railways? Is Labour still in favour of that goal, ultimately? Well, I mean, definitely, we, we, we want to see rail brought into public ownership. Yeah. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, partly because that's where the public are. You know, we, we have won the public debate uh, on railways. One, because of the affordability, hugely expensive, particularly for commuters uh, to be able to get around the country and get to work. Uh, but also, actually, it's critical for how we rebalance, how we move goods around the country uh, in particular. So, you know, if you want to uh, get uh, freight off the roads, away from the HGV and the polluting uh, vehicles, then actually rail does provide an opportunity to do that. I also think that rail doesn't sit in isolation. Actually, what really works well is where you have different transport modes that are under local democratic control that interact with each other and are planned and coordinated together. You know, so making sure that the bus turns up when people get off the train would be a, a really simple example of that. But also mm-hmm. making sure the bus actually takes them to where they live uh, and you resolve that last mile transport that in so many communities have been denied them uh, is all really uh, important. I also think, to be honest, that we haven't really seen the benefits from privatisation uh, in the way that we're really promised. Uh, we've seen companies who have made a lot of money uh, from uh, nationalize, uh, the kind of privatisation of rail franchises, but I'm not sure that the public are necessarily seeing the same uh, in their day-to-day experiences. Uh, and I would say that, you know, if you think about aviation as being quite a good uh, example of that, you basically got domestic jobs on the line And instead of providing financial support for that, the government have agreed to underwrite all the revenue risk of what are private franchises who are generally owned by foreign governments. So even though the Tories have been opposed to nationalisation for such a long time, they don't mind the Spanish government running our railways or the German government or the Italians uh, or the French. Uh, And by the way, in a time of crisis when many other industries are being let down, you know, we're paying a 2% operator's margin uh, to those shareholders. You know, that's now half a billion pound of payments that have gone out and so, you know, I think if it was right before, it's certainly right to do it now. And I think with the Williams review, uh, obviously kind of sending the government into a position where now they have to respond to that and set out the framework of how rail will be run, uh, we're going to have to review that. That will be the context in which we plan for 2024. I was wondering what you thought kind of more generally as well about the future of, of public transport, including rail. I mean, the government at the moment is trying to get people back to offices. They're, they're a bit ambiguous about their whole office return campaign, uh, now denying that it ever existed. But they're not encouraging the use of trains and buses while telling people to go back to work in the office rather than at home. So there's less commuting generally during the crisis and people are also being steered towards driving to work and other things. And also in terms of those kind of leisure trips, I know that 
normally I would love to take the train to, to York or Durham. That in itself is a pleasurable experience. But if I have to spend the whole thing in a mask, I might kind of be, you'd be a bit more hesitant about it because it's a lot of hours to be in a mask. So, I mean, are you worried about the future of public transport in light of those sort of changes that come about during COVID? Yeah, if I'm, I'm quite a vigilante about face coverings, to be honest. I think it's one of the real easy things we can do. And I tend to think if a nurse can do a 12 hour shift wearing a mask, then we can probably spend a couple of hours on a train. Yeah. Um, and by the way, you know, operators are realistic. You know, if you, if you need to take a drink of water or uh, you're eating a sandwich, then, you know, providing you're not creating a risk for other people, then, you know, it, it's, it's harder like it's tough enforcement at the moment. But I think it's more about how do you um, kind of regularize uh, the fact that we all need to take individual actions to reduce the risk. And in, in a way, kind of a face covering is the most visual aspect of that. I think kind of getting back to your original uh, point, which was around, I suppose, will we ever see a return to the type of transport system and demand and usage and patronage that we had before COVID, given that our working habits and travel social habits might change and restructure significantly. I think some of that will be about, you know, what steps the government take. So what are they going to do to make sure that our town centres and our high streets are supported through what will be a very difficult time, already on hugely weak foundations in terms of retail uh, office accommodation? Um, I mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't over-emphasise um, it, but let's be honest, for 10 years, we have seen a reduction in office accommodation in our towns. Our cities generally have, you know, kind of held their own. Um, but if you want to see the impact of what office workers leaving a town looks like, come to Alden. You know, we've had thousands of people who have been sacked from our local council because of Tory austerity. Uh, we've had our magistrates court closed. Uh, we've had our county court closed. We've had HMRC close their office and relocate hundreds of staff out of our town uh, as well. And that's before you get anywhere near then the additional kind of businesses that used to kind of survive because of that footfall. Well, actually, those are critical for a mixed economy in any town centre. You need your day workers uh, providing footfall during the day shopping, meeting friends after work uh, is critical. You need people living in town centres, but quality town centres, not these rabbit hutches that the Tories allow in office conversions to become. No, you know, no quality outdoor space, no contribution to wider community infrastructure like schools or play areas or safe environments uh, for people to enjoy. You know, I think where we end up in 2024, we're going to have to have, have I think, a very radical view uh, about investment in our towns and our town centres in particular. In terms of other areas and in terms of public transport in the future, there are other kind of areas of controversy. And I'm thinking what one is Uber, for instance, and other kind of modes of transport like it. They've become quite controversial in labor circles and Sadiq Khan in particular has taken a strong line. So has people have people like West Streeting. And I think I think they're going to court later this month in terms of their London license. So there are these environmental concerns, concerns about workers' rights, fake self-employment, those kind of things. But among young people, if you go on a night out, it's probably, I mean, it would be very unusual if people weren't going home by Uber. What's your take on that and, and those companies like Uber? What do you think is their future and what do you think Labour's position should be on them? I think politicians, particularly for debates in, in Parliament, um, view technology as this kind of magical wizardy thing that nobody can quite get their heads around that, that it's kind of the you know young kids that seem to do it uh, and I feel like as I'm slightly getting older I feel the same every new social media platform that somebody mentioned I've never heard of um, but nevertheless uh, if you take it back to its core the basics what is uber 
it's no different than the old cab office that you used to phone and it used to send a taxi, to be honest. It's just a way of connecting the customer uh, with the taxi, with the service that then takes them to where they want to go. I think the difference, though, is that because the technology platform is so more efficient than the old cab office, um, it's essentially almost an instantaneous lift, isn't it? If you're in a city centre in particular, you won't be waiting long for your Uber to turn up because there will be one around the corner because that's where the, the vibrant market is. And so you do get closer to what was in the Hackney flaggiest cab down on the street market, which is very different than your pre-booked private hire market. Uh, and I think what, you know, black cab operators are not trying to deny progress, uh, as far as I can see. Uh, Sadiq certainly isn't trying to deny progress at all. What they're saying and what I agree with is that there should be a level playing field. And so if you're a black cab driver and there are requirements that you, you have to meet to be able to provide a decent customer service uh, and safety and the rest of it, then, well, if the black cab driver has to provide it, then surely the Uber driver should provide it. So he's not asking for any more of the Uber driver than it is the Hackney driver. He's saying there should be a level playing field provided uh, through that. And also, to be honest, again, you know, party of workers and the rest of it, you know, a lot of these people are being exploited. Mm -hmm. You know, again, you, the, the wizardry of technology, well, it's no different, is it, than, you know, the old cab office saying to somebody, just take cash in hand over there. You're not really working here. We won't declare it over here. All right, it might be declared, but the bogus self-employment where people don't have a choice about what they can or can't accept all the hours that they work and the rest of it is really no different. And you can see it in Ubers, but you can also see it in some of our parcel delivery uh, companies. You know, one area that's boomed is home uh, ordering, uh, online delivery, uh, and then the infrastructure that you need to support that, you know, the... Uh, well, a lot of that is actually self-employed people using their private cars in you know, usually actually environmentally not sustainable forms of transport at all, you know, quite old vehicles uh, in particular, when actually these companies are making a fortune. And I think people just want to see fair play uh, and that the value that we are collectively creating in our economy is being used to be reinvested back for our collective good. And if you're a company that doesn't understand that and you're just trying to exploit people, you don't want to invest it in the wider society and good, actually you know make money and be successful in the rest of it then you can expect to be called out for it mm. well, i think it kind of unfortunately the the model of uber actually rests on a lot of those things doesn't it on exploiting workers because it's not even it's not even profitable as a as a company as a venture the the point of it is actually to just crowd out the market but not actually make money from it and then everyone's kind of losing out at the moment so yeah i mean labor's stance sort of undermines it as a concept but but in some ways through, through regulation you drive out these bad practices so if you, if you look at the vat challenge uh that was made on uber um that was one of the reasons why well hang on no they are self-employed if you take it as a collective then you're liable for vat because you're over the threshold and it creates all sorts of additional costs that we didn't take into account well that's the law you've got to comply by the, with the law or otherwise you're going to find yourself you know uh, kind of acting against the national interest it's no different in other aspects if you think about um kind of the rent to buy market you know the washing machine providers like bright house and perfect home and the rest of it who were exploiting people with eye-watering interest rates, uh, or look at the um, the payday lenders, you know, thousands of percent interest they were charging. Well, the minute there was a cap on interest rates, a lot of those exited the marketplace because it wasn't viable. We're quite right as well. And I think for, you know, through good regulation, actually Parliament can uh, give the protection to uh, wider society, and it's a shame we don't do it more often. Mm. 
The other kind of thing that's um, in terms of the future of transport, another thing that comes up is self-driving cars. And the Tories seem quite in favour of them. But there are people like Christian Wilmar, for instance, he's written about this uh, on Labourless. And he takes the view that basically there won't really be driverless cars. It's more likely that we'll see driver aids. And he says that they're really dangerous, not because of the aids themselves, but actually because they de-skill drivers. They, and there was a kind of example of this last month, a few weeks ago, this driver crashed because he was watching a film, even though it wasn't a completely driverless car, he was supposed to be in you know, active supervision over the driving. So, I mean, what do you think about those kind of new technologies? Should we be resisting them as a Labour Party? Does it make us look like spoil sports who don't want kind of progress in those areas? Well, I mean, for me, there's a huge opportunity in new technology and new modes of transport that we should embrace, not least of all, because, you know, if we can find a way of uh, kind of leading on research and development here in the UK, if we can have a robust supply chain here in the UK, then I think those will provide decent jobs for working people. Um, but there is a displacement that will take place where, you know, people who are currently uh, manual workers in those occupations uh, could see their jobs lost as a result uh, of it. I mean, on the, the particular point though about driverless cars, uh, I mean, as it stands, the law requires, and I should say the bar is going to be extremely high forever revisiting this, uh, that a motorised vehicle has got to have somebody in charge of it. You've got to have control ultimately of that vehicle, which is why you almost get into kind of driver assist technology more than a completely uh, kind of driverless car in that sense. And I think my instinct says that's more likely to be where we are than anything else. Um, but it might give other opportunities for kind of more pool car sharing, uh, more kind of community transport schemes uh, in the future, potentially. The other thing would be uh, electric cars. I know that this people are trying to transition to them at the moment, but people kind of point out that actually the electricity to power them comes from fossil fuels. So are, are they really that environmentally friendly ultimately? And we'd need huge infrastructure improvements in order to actually get that rolled out across country. What do you, what's your take on those? What's Labour's policy at the moment? Well, I mean, at the moment, um, electric vehicles are so expensive that they are generally the preserve of the leased car driver, uh, the company car uh, beneficiary, uh, or people who have enough income to be able to cover the additional cost of that. And so if we want to change the behaviour of the mass population, we need to have technologies that are available to the mass population. And affordability is key to that. Now, we can be far more ambitious in investing in research and technology that brings the cost of that technology down and, you know, uh, cell technology, battery technology uh, is an important part of that. But we, I think we also need to go back to why do many people feel they need to have a private car in the first place? when actually most of our journeys are within a very kind of concentrated uh, environment, particularly in urban areas. You know, why do you need a car for the school run? Why do you need a car to get four miles down the road uh, to work? Generally, it's because we haven't created the alternative, which is decent quality public transport that takes people from where they are to where they want to go. And it's not rocket science, you know, connecting people with where they live to where they want to socialize, go to college, uh, where they can access decent jobs, you know, particularly as people travel even further to the jobs and you know, uh, many years ago, uh, is going to be fundamental, you know, which is why I think transport is so central to Labour's policy uh, going forward. Um, but you know, I think we should be embracing technology uh, far more, uh, far more ambitious in research and uh, development, and also harnessing then the job potential uh, that that can bring. But what we should not be doing is to continue to believe 
that the only way to get around is for every person to have a private vehicle when actually what most people want is decent, affordable public transport. You mentioned in your article about your priorities uh, as Labour's new Shadow Transport Secretary, you said that you wanted Labour to talk more about other areas that don't receive as much attention as the kind of ones we've been talking about, like the maritime sector. So what are those other areas that you want us to be talking about? And I was wondering, because you mentioned that specifically, is that kind of a part of a broader strategy by Labour to focus on coastal communities? That's something I wrote about over the weekend, that that's a clear focus for, the, for Labour under Keir. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I mean it, co it covers a range of issues, I suppose, but I kind of come down to probably two points, really. One is about quality of life, uh, and the second one is about uh, work, uh, purpose, pride, uh, identity. You know, work is such an important part of working people's identity. Where you work, what you do is critical to who you are. Um, it's always been that way. Um, but in terms of quality of life, uh, I would say that having a poor transport system uh, has a real impact on the ability to be able to live a fulfilled life. You know, so if you're stood at a bus stop every morning in the rain because the bus doesn't turn up, it's not just that you're depressed because of that experience and frustrated and angry. You also need to build your life around that experience and so you know the likelihood of being late for work where well, you can get away with saying it, the bus didn't turn up on time once or twice but if you're now weeks or months into that then it's kind of an impact you know and then you look at you know kind of where we are northern rail and just how terrible that was uh and it's still not anywhere where it needs to be those have a real day-to-day -day impact on people's quality of life it also means that you spend disproportionately more of your time traveling when you could be spending time resting socializing uh time with your family and I think particularly as people uh, now work further away, uh, where, you know, people uh, work far more hours, uh, where, you know, generally two people in a house will work, that all impacts on the ability of people actually to spend that quality time together doing things that make us human beings. And so I think that's a really important aspect. Coming directly onto your point about maritime and coastal communities, we have to have a strategy for addressing the fact that many of our... Um, particular economies have been hollowed out. So have a view on well, what does it mean for ex-coal mining communities when the coal mine closes? What does it mean for towns like Oldham was built on cotton, but the last cotton mill closed in 1996? Uh, all those kind of decent, you know, manufacturing and engineering jobs in my town, they're provided by uh, BAE Systems. You know, the Avril, we built the Lancaster bomber, uh, you know, that led this country to victory and uh, employed tens of thousands of people in a factory that's now closed down. Uh, or Platt Brothers Engineering Works or Ferrantes that made the components for the world's first computer. When those jobs go, they don't just take away the earning potential of the people who live there, and of course then the economic damage that happens as a result of that. I think they take away part of who we are, our identity, our reason for living. Because far more than just a wage packet, they are a community in their own rights. And I think, you know, when the alternative is a exploitative warehousing distribution job, uh, or you're being exploited, uh, you know, by the parcel company, or you're an Uber driver, or the rest of it, and you just don't feel any agency, any power. I do think there's a correlation between people demanding to take back control and having that sense of control in the workplace uh, and in the communities where they live, and in our coastal communities. Uh, I think that's very powerful. You know, you do hear it a lot, and so, yeah, we, we do need to have a very clear view about what we mean for our coastal communities. Uh, our city port communities, uh, what our views about defence uh, is going to be critical to that in many places as well. 
uh, all that matters. I'm going to now turn to our readers' questions that they've submitted. Um, so we've got some more stuff on the kind of things that I haven't been able to cover. So that would be good. Um, I've got a question here. First, a quick one on rail again. Uh, ben on Twitter says, uh, can you please ask Jim whether he'll stick to Andy McDonald's GB rail policy for the future? Yes, yeah, so we see uh, GB Rail um, as a foundation, if you like. What we're keen to do, uh, well, I think first of all, to take into account where we are by the time we get to 2024, because that will be the environment in which we are operating, and that will be the point at which we begin to transition from where we are at that point to where we want to be ultimately in terms of our vision uh, for rail. By that time, a lot will change. The government will have their uh, Williams review uh, into rail uh, response. Uh, we're almost certainly going to see a restructure of uh, the rail industry. Uh, we're almost certainly going to see the franchising scheme as it exists today change. And that's before we take into account the impact of COVID on the medium to long term change about the financial viability and the demand uh, led services. So that will form part of that. But also being realistic, you know, you don't get a better service just by taking it from one ownership to another, from the private sector to the public sector, without the investment needed to address why the services have been uh, de-invested in for so long. Um, now, some of that is about resource, you know, how many workers you've got providing that service to the public. Some of it's about infrastructure and making sure that you've got the right investment in electrification and new carriages. Uh, again, huge opportunities there for our uh, kind of, you know, GDP in terms of creating manufacturing jobs through the UK supply chain uh, as a result of that. All that will feed in uh, to where we get to. But the real test, I suppose, for the public is, what I want to know is if Labour's plan is to take it from private to public ownership, tell me what it's going to mean for my season ticket fare. Is it going to be cheaper? Is it going to be more expensive to pay for it? Uh, what does it mean for reliability? Uh, are you going to turn up on time or is it just going to be that I've got somebody else to blame? Are you going to invest in new routes? Because actually the issue for me isn't just that we've got a terrible rail system, it's I haven't got a rail system. <laughs> Uh, and is the rail system right uh, for that reinvestment or is it light rail, like tram systems, uh, for instance? And so there'll be a coordinated approach taken to that. I also think one area that we can do more on and one area that I'm keen as a kind of fan of local government and a local councillor for so long is that actually we are far too centralising in this country when it comes to transport. And I think local democratic control uh, and accountability is really important. Uh, and I think that's the best way to achieve that. So for me, there is no point in having GB Rail on one hand, if we don't address the fact that we haven't got municipal bus companies uh, taking back the buses into public control on the other, but then having a coordination across that with democratic accountability, properly resourced, uh, will be part of our kind of single plan as we go forward. Okay, thank you. Um, Ellie asks, are you a cyclist? What's your favorite mode of transport? And does Labour have a plan to making cycling more, for making cycling more inclusive? for instance, supporting electric bikes? Well, I mean, definitely when, you know, COVID first struck and people were told not to use public transport, you know, we've seen a huge boom in people looking at cycling. But I would say for a lot of people who are either not cyclists at all, or if they are, it's probably for leisure more than commuting. Actually, cycling can be quite an intimidating experience if your route is your main road that's heavily polluted. You know, in Greater Manchester, for instance, we have a huge issue with air quality. Um, where actually, you know, you question whether it's right for your health to be close to these polluting vehicles. Right. Uh, and that's before you get into how vulnerable you feel as a cyclist uh, when you're approached by uh, uh, vehicles on the, on the other side. So 
uh, there's that bit of it, which is how do you build up skills and competency and confidence uh, to meet with people where they are today, with where we ultimately want to get them to, which is a cycling revolution. Uh, and so for me, that starts in schools and colleges. Uh, it's about our, you know, the, the old kind of cycling proficiency training uh, that, that we used to do. We could do far more of that uh, and roll that out and expand it, but also make sure it's not like a one-trick uh, training course, you know, to make sure that that's sustained. Having far more secure storage. Uh, actually, the reason why, uh, you know, I won't cycle to some places uh, isn't because necessarily I'm not confident about the route from A to B. It's I'm, sometimes I'm not confident the bike's going to be there when I get back. <laughs> Uh, and if it is, if somebody's going to have taken the wheel off, uh, you kind of walk around London and I'm astonished how many cycle frames, skeletons are on the railings, you know. Yeah. All that matters, actually, in terms of giving people confidence uh, that it's the right move. So at the moment, I, I would say I'm a, uh, a leisure cyclist, but I'm not yet confident to be a commuting cyclist. Um, and I should say my favourite mode of transport by a long way uh, is walking. So every week I'll walk from Euston Station to Parliament, I'll walk back, uh, I'll walk as much as I can, uh, you know, around uh, where I live in uh, in Oldham as well. Uh, now, for me, that's a bit my time to switch off. It's my time to think, uh, to clear my head and to kind of reflect. Uh, and I find it really rewarding. Uh, I also think that, you know, this country has some beautiful architecture, some beautiful parks. And actually, the best way to really appreciate them uh, isn't necessarily to watch for the car coming from your right-hand side. It's to to walk and look up and just take in, you know, the quality of uh, of the country where we live. That sounds lovely. I definitely need to do more walking. <laughs> um, John Hughes says, uh, so he lives along the A27 at Worthing. And he says there are 32,000 vehicles a day pass through his residential area. Can you, Jim, put pressure on whoever to give us clean air to breathe? Obviously, this is kind of DEFRA related as well, but you might have something to say. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, hugely supportive of clean air zones. Um, and it, you know, maybe we need to be a bit more ambitious and look at the national rail network because that's one thing that is excluded if uh, i mean if you're into this stuff then you'll know but many people don't know that actually the national road network is excluded from clean air zones so you have this ridiculous situation in greater manchester again as, as my local example whereby there is a con consultation taking place on a greater manchester clean air zone but the m60 motorway that causes significant pollution the m62 uh, the trunk roads that actually run through many parts of the conurbation itself are completely excluded because Highways England isn't part of the clean air zone uh, strategy. I think we need to assess where we are. So at the moment, the clean air zone baseline uh, is actually 2020. Uh, and we all know that actually traveling patterns have changed significantly. And I think there's a real danger that actually because uh, there's been kind of abnormal change. And what I mean by that is it's temporary, it won't be sustained. We probably won't go back to the way we were but it certainly yeah. won't be how it is now forever. Yeah. Uh, we need to think about the baseline and what that means in terms of setting the bar uh, that requires clean air zones. And then finally, for me, we need to make sure, again, that it's affordable for working people. So, you know, it, it's not good enough, for instance, just to introduce a congestion charge that means it takes people who can't afford to pay it off the roads, but allows rich people who can afford to pay it to stay on the roads. Uh, we need to make sure that we have a decent public transport system uh, and that we have regulation in place supported by financial support to allow people to make that change. So don't introduce a clean air zone um, without giving taxi drivers support to be able to buy clean electric vehicles. Uh, don't introduce a clean air zone when you haven't got any support for self-employed people or small companies to move from their diesel van to an electric van. Uh, and also where we're going to find that money from. So 
you know, over the last 20 years, the number of diesel vehicles has increased, again, data geek, from 2 million to 4 million. Uh, so doubled the number of diesel vehicle, diesel vans on the road. Well, given that the industries that have boomed in lockdown have been your online delivery companies uh, and the rest of it, uh, Amazon and the like, well, that would be a good place to start to require them uh, to actually transition far quicker uh, to electric vehicles because those at the moment are the boom industries. That's where the value is being created. And of course, if you did that and linked it to UK manufacturing, we also support those jobs in this country as well. So there's lots of things the government can do today. Uh, but, you know, clean air zones are important. But they, we do need to make sure that we give people that transitional support so it's not just seen as a stealth tax. Absolutely. If anyone's winning from the, the pandemic, it's definitely people like Amazon, uh, companies like Amazon. Um, Dan but, but then they'll pay the self-employed driver to use their private car yeah. to race down your road and drop off your parcel without any of you about the environmental impact that's creating. Yeah. Um, Dan says the big controversy in London Labour membership right now is about low traffic neighbourhoods, so essentially preventing through traffic in residential areas. Do you think those and potentially other measures that help walking and cycling increase or decrease inequalities? My experience in, in my own town is that the people who need access to good quality environments most are the people who live in areas that are most ill-equipped to, to deliver it. So it'll be the terrace streets, you know, where it's too far to walk to the local park. The roads aren't safe to be able to cross. You have an alleyway, but it's used for fly tipping and it's not safe because of broken glass and the rest of it. Uh, or you have neighbours who just don't respect uh, where you live. Um, we can do far more to create decent places to live. And so for me, it's beyond transport. It's actually reimagining the built environment and how we use it. So I would like to see more areas given over for children to play in a safe way. I would like to give us to see more area given over for safe cyclists. But to be honest, just giving over more space to cyclists without considering the impact on, uh, on pedestrians uh, isn't the answer in itself. We need to think about how we all interact uh, in the built environment. On the particular issue that I am aware of about the, the tension of effectively just closing roads off uh, and giving them over to, to other uses away from uh, vehicles. Uh, I, I would say, and you need you probably expect me to say this, um, you know, that I believe in local democracy and it's really important that if people have concerns about that, that they feel able to raise them with their local council in the first instance. Uh, and I don't think it'd be right, to be honest, given that I'm a localist, uh, for me to kind of wade in with two feet and get into what is a local argument made by people who've been elected democratically. Okay, I will just uh, put one more question to you before we end, um, which is some of the things we've already touched on. But um, Graham says, can I ask Jim what are his views on cycling and walking strategy? Does he have any views on restricting the number of cars on our now overcrowded roads, leading to excessive numbers of cars parking on pavements to the detriment of pedestrians and wheelchair users? Well, again, without wishing to repeat myself, we need to look at why people feel the need to have those cars um, in the first place. And I think generally it will be because the alternative is not practical uh, or it's not affordable. And so if I think about kind of conversations that I have about, well, why do you use your car when you live in a town like Oldham on the doorstep of Manchester and buses? Well, that's because I'm trying to keep two or three jobs down. I've got to pick my kids up from school. I've got to care for somebody. Uh, I've got to try and fit so much in a day. 
I can't mm. afford to have two or three hours of my working day going around those different areas, going across the city, uh, on waiting for transport to turn up, if it turns up in some cases at all. And by the way, the, you know, the issue for a lot of people when it comes to public transport as an option isn't in itself the reliability of your main routes in and out of a town or a city. It's your neighbourhood routes, your estate routes, your rural routes that have really been cut over the last 10 years. And if you don't address that last mile that makes it really efficient, usable transport for people, we're never going to get people away from the private motor vehicle onto public transport. And so for me, that's a real challenge. How do you create that viable alternative? Uh, and I should say, you know, and uh, hopefully I'm not repeating myself too much on this, but it's not acceptable at all to have this system in place that we see today, whereby private bus operators can make an absolute killing from viable commercial routes on one hand, but refuse to serve uh, the local estate, in, instead demanding subsidy. What we need is a far better system where that cross-subsidy exists, where the money that's taken from profitable routes is used exclusively to make sure that those local communities get the transport that they need. And that's where people look at the current bus system and says it's absolutely uh, failed. And then the investment in infrastructure, making sure that you've got safe routes. You know, actually, I think we underestimate the value of off-road routes, you know, disused railway lines, uh, the canal network have been really, you know, with investment, you know, lighting, good quality surfacing, uh, and the rest of it could be fantastic commuter routes. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Jim. I'll end it there because it's nearly eight o'clock. Um, thank you so much for joining us for one of these events and I hope we'll catch up with you again at some, some point next year uh, to do another one. That would be great and hope you enjoyed it. Great, thank, uh, you. <laughs> thank you everyone for watching um, and do join us for our, our next In Conversations with more Shadow Cabinet members. I need to book next week's but we, I know we've got John Healy coming up soon so Keep us tuned to our uh, channel and to the morning emails. Sign up if you haven't already signed up. Thank you. Hello.